Their progress had not been in a straight line, but rather along the alien curves and spirals of some ethereal vortex which obeyed laws unknown to the physics and mathematics of any conceivable cosmos. Eventually there had been a hint of vast, leaping shadows, of a monstrous half-acoustic pulsing, and of the thin, monotonous piping of an unseen flute. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a sometimes fortnightly, sometimes monthly, and otherwise whenever we can manage it, podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm much better than I was about five minutes ago. Oh, very good. We tried this for the first time. (laughs) How are you? Yeah, I'm well as well. This is um, another one of our law episodes. We like to do these before a new cycle begins, and I've got to say, I'm super excited. This is going to be a cool one, I, I hope. You know, the proof will be in the recording, but yeah, we've got some interesting things to cover. Yeah, absolutely. Oh no, interesting. Yeah, yeah, legit interesting. Not drawn to the flame interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't get very far. Yeah, but I meant it in a, I meant it in a proper way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah th- there's, oh, well. some, there's some juicy topics in this cycle, I think. So can't wait to dive into them. Yeah, and my starting point for thinking about this, do you remember when we interviewed Matt and he said, you mentioned witches to him about what was on his mood board for the next cycle. And he was a bit kind of cagey around that and said, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful with witches because there is a real, uh, I guess, pagan religion, Wicca, that has witches in it. And Lovecraft's witches are not the same as those kind of witches. So that really got me thinking about what points of contact can we have to get into this cycle? And if we just call it the witch cycle, we're maybe not doing it a favour. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, and, and on top of that is that accusations of witchery we use to persecute lots of women in times gone by. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's kind of problematic, and that's why we decided to start with a story called <laughs> Dreams in the Witch House. The yeah. Dreams in the Witch House. By not at all problematic writer H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> Yeah, I I noticed reading this, this is just a little aside, that I was slightly waiting for the kind of unavoidable racism. And as we've done with all our law episodes, because we're talking about H.P. Lovecraft and he's not an entirely uncontroversial writer, this is, I suppose, a, a trigger warning or just a, a racism warning that there's a little bit in this story as well that I found yeah, pretty definitely. unpalatable. Yeah, as we're in a, in a in a comfortable position that we can happily talk about this without it being us the, the subject to any of his prejudice, but mm. you know that's not the case for all our listeners at all. So yeah, we we acknowledge that that it's there, and I think we'll, we'll try and be as sensitive as we can in the discussion. Unlike some of the other stories, is the racism isn't a a key story point. <laughs> so there, there's that in its favour this time, I guess. Yeah, does that make it better or worse? It's hard (laughs) to tell, yeah. Okay, so The Dreams in the Witch House. This was written between January and February of 1932, but it was only published the following year in July 1933, so sort of 18 months later in Weird Tales. And I I think that's important to note, partly because that means it, it hung around for a little while, and also the dates are important to note because Lovecraft dies, I think, in 37. So this is really late Lovecraft. One little bit of article I read situated it firmly in kind of fourth phase Lovecraft. And I'd not really come across that term before, but basically talking about he'd reached this point as a writer where he was really only interested in tone 
and in fleshing out his kind of weird worlds and not really interested in telling conventional stories anymore, which is, yeah, worth worth bearing in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I, I discovered in the in my little bit of research around this story that August Derleth didn't really like this story, but it was he who submitted it to Weird Tales and he he said he didn't think it was unsaleable. In fact, he thought it would sell. He said it was a poor story, which is entirely different and much more lamentably important thing. And Lovecraft wrote back to Derleth and said, your reaction to my poor dreams in the witch house is, in kind, about what I expected, although I hardly thought the miserable mess was quite as bad as you found it. The whole incident shows me that my fictional days are probably over, which weirdly is a little bit prescient but yeah yeah. and it kind of paints a picture of someone who's maybe cranking up stories maybe more for their own enjoyment you know he's working on his mythology i guess Mm -hmm. and also put me in my mentioned this to you earlier is you know it's never been an indication of something's quality how well it sells yeah that's true that's true and i guess derleth uh recognized that with this this tale in particular yeah, he reckoned it, it would sell file, fine, but that didn't necessarily make it good. So what's, what's it about, Frank? So it, it's the story of one Walter Gilman, who's a student at, I suppose, Miskatonic University? I don't think it calls it Miskatonic University in the... Or is that only a, an Arkham Files thing? He's a student in Arkham of mathematics and physics and things like that. And he's renting a room in a pretty run-down boarding house. He's renting the attic room, and he's pretty convinced that it's haunted in some way. I think think that's as far as I would go to describe it. And really, the whole story is just a meditation on these kind of fevered dreams that Gilman is having, and how he tries to cope with them or, or fails coping with them. And in fact, about halfway through the story, there's a nice bit which I thought was Lovecraft, maybe summing up the story so far, where he writes, Fever, wild dreams, somnambulism, illusions of sound, a pull towards a point in the sky, and now a suspicion of insane sleep-talking. So I could imagine if this was the TV programme, that would be the the kind of flashback after the ad break for you to get back into the story and remember what it was about. Yeah, wasn't there a suggestion that actually he sought out this particular room? Am I making that up? No, that's that's right. Yeah. yeah. So so he was deliberately looking for this house that was occupied by by a, a mysterious witch, a figure in Arkham's history. Yeah. So she's called Kaziah Mason, which is a great name. Yeah, really cool name. And he notes about her: it was this house and this room which had likewise harboured old Kaziah Mason whose flight from Salem jail at the last no one was ever able to explain. That was in 1692. The jailer had gone mad and babbled of a small, white-fanged, furry thing which scuttled out of Keziah's cell. So one of the things that really struck me about this story is that Lovecraft is pretty upfront about Keziah Mason and about her familiar, which is a rat creature called Brown Jenkin, who's a small, white-fanged, furry thing, like the body of a large rat, but with a man's face with a beard and little fangs and human hands. Kind of creepy. Yeah, it, it is. So so just as a brief aside, uh, I get, mm. uh, well, before we get into that, I guess we're going to discuss the story in some detail. So if you want to read it without us <laughs> yes, discussing yeah. what's going to happen, go and do it. It's only, it's not that long. You can probably read it in an hour or two. It's not one of the very short ones, but it's not up there with, you know, like say The Call of Cthulhu, which is quite a long, a long piece. 
Yes, it, it did. Unfortunately, remind, I don't know whether you've ever seen the film "What We Do in the Shadows." Mm-hmm, I have. Yeah, there's a section where, so it's it's that's about a collection of vampires who just live together in a suburban house in uh, Wellington, I think, in New Zealand. Uh, and it's really funny. So I highly recommend you watching that. But one of the vampires has the power to turn into any animal, but he can never do the face. So there's yes. a bit where one of them goes into the room and he's turned into a cat, but it's still got his face. And all the way through, that's sort of what I had in mind for Brown Jenkin. It was just like a rat with Jermaine Clement's face. <laughs> yeah. it, is a, it is a strangely unsettling, but also hilarious image of this little rat creature. The tiny hands as well. It doesn't the tiny hands, have yeah. claws. It's got little hands. Yeah, and there's even a note at the end of sort of saying it's more like a monkey than yeah. a rat because it's got sort of monkey hands. And you wonder why he didn't just describe it as a monkey then. But he hasn't done. That's Lovecraft for you. So throughout the story, this isn't your kind of your horror story where these things are hinted at. Lovecraft lays this out really directly because Ia Mason was meant to be executed in 1692 and instead she disappeared. And throughout Arkham, people say that they see her every so often and no one ever found her body. And similarly, they say that they've seen Brown Jenkin. And the protagonist does a little bit to dismiss these ideas and says that they're a bit outrageous, but he's clearly not that reliable of a narrator because he's also sought out this room that he thought was Kazaya Mason's and he's interested in things that she was supposedly interested in, namely being able to escape our three dimensions and travel through space and time to other places and other realms. Yeah, it's not a straightforward narrative where the protagonist questions all of the reality around them. He sort of takes it as read. And that that to me was, yeah, quite striking. I actually spent most of my time reading the story just wanting to hear more about Kazaya Mason's power and what she was like, because I felt like she could be a really compelling antagonist for The Circle Undone. So I'm going to read another bit, if that's all right. Yeah, please do. He's been reading about what she's done, and uh, he's found these diagrams of lines and curves. It was implied that such lines and curves were frequently used at certain midnight meetings in the dark valley of the White Stone beyond Meadow Hill and on the unpeopled island in the river. She had spoken also of the Black Man, of her oath, and of her new secret name of Nahab. And and later we have the hidden cults to which these witches belonged, often guarded and handed down surprising secrets from elder forgotten eons. Now Matt mentioned to us that part of The Circle Undone was about secrets kept over generations and, and sort of the, the oaths and pacts made in previous times still having power through the ages. So this was really striking to me that maybe Kazaya Mason has found a way of prolonging her life and as a result she still exists in the time of this story. Yeah. Well, I mean, what struck me more was that she's maybe found a way to exist beyond time. Yeah. So, so time yeah. doesn't... And there's there's hints of this later on. I think that they talk about... So so towards the end, they, they uncover this hidden chamber that was in the house where Gilmore was staying all along. Mm. Uh, and the, the, the kind of hideous denouement is that it's full of full of bones from across history, some so old that they're mouldering away. And to me, that suggests she's, she's existed beyond time and has moved around time, carrying out these horrible things and, and sacrifices. And we, we're not sure at what point in that existence that Gilman has encountered her. Well, presumably at the end, because he strangles her. Mm. Or does he? Or does he, yeah. There is a slightly unexpected 
twist at the end in terms of what one might expect to happen to a Lovecraft protagonist. So I think we'll avoid spoiling that. Yes, that's that was that was one of my favorite bits actually. <laughs> oh, good, good, yeah, uh, mine too, too as well. So yeah, as the story progresses, Gilman starts having these dreams, hence the title of the story. And most of the dreams, would it be fair to say, are just kind of pure sci-fi. He's just in kind of limitless abysses of inexplicably coloured twilight and baffingly disordered sound. That is a quotation from the yeah. story. And in fact, this this is what surprised me going into the story the most was that I was expecting kind of gothic tale of of witches and and rites on blasted heaths but it turned out it was it was quite is sci-fi i think would be the best way of describing it mm, yeah kind of pulled into these alternate dimensions it called to mind for me the art we saw at the on the cover of the secret name yes which is the first mythos pack of this cycle which has pictures three people climbing a kind of mountain but there's also the the sky is purple or even violet that word recurs repeatedly in this story and one of the things that happens to Gilman in this story is that every so often he he's in the midst of a dream and he seems to sort of wake up and find himself on a cliff edge yeah and that is terrifying to him but he's found a place where rather than sort of drifting through space he's sort of found a, a real place he just doesn't know where that place is and again this this left me thinking could this be a scenario is this is this somewhere we're going to end up that we end up sort of traveling through space and time as we go through this cycle, as we start discovering the power that these witches in Arkham held to kind of break out of three dimensions? Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, I, I guess at this point it it became clear to me and I looked it up afterwards that Lovecraft had obviously recently read some books about mathematics and, and dimensions because I think he pulls quite heavily on some kind of scientific uh, source text and that's backed up i think he'd, he'd been to see a scientific lecture by one of the mathematicians he mentions early on uh, mm. he'd been to a lecture by them and it's, some of the elements are pulled into the story so a, a few weeks ago i listened to an audio play of this story by the dark adventure radio theater okay i think that's what how was called. it how did they handle it they'd adapted it to, to a large extent and it was it was shorter as well, so the condensed elements of it. But there's a great section where Gilman stands up. They, they say, like, oh, you know, Gilman, is, he was known for his outrageous ideas in the maths class. And he stands up and he delivers this this monologue mm. about alternate dimensions and travelling into alternate dimensions, referencing some of the famous texts, like Flatland is one of them, where you've got, you know, there's an mm-hmm. ant, ant walking on a 2D plane and you fold the plane over and stuff like that. So, uh, and, and then everyone's quite shocked by what he's saying. So, how, how dare you say these things? This, is, this isn't real. So I think that they did cover that better in the audio drama than he does in the book, in my opinion. Mm. The impression I had over all of this story was that really character development, action, plot, all of them came second to mood and tone Lovecraft continues to describe these dreams. I think the dreams happen five times and he describes them much the same way each time, maybe changing one or two elements. And he doesn't really have any interest in moving things on for the reader as much as just kind of wallowing in, indulging in this atmosphere. And you can see how actually, as a result, it could be great as a story to have on one's mood board because it's just so, it's dripping in this stuff. You don't spend the story wondering what it's like, because Lovecraft actually gives you so much information. But on the other hand, if you wanted to make a film of this story, I think it would be quite difficult, because so little really happens. 
there's a there's a bit that happens. He has he talks about the kind of procession of dates, and there is at least um, Walpurgis Night is on the horizon, which is a night when evil things can can walk again, a little bit like Halloween, but in I think it's the first of May. There's there's that on the horizon that's kind of a worrying date, but yeah, beyond that, it's it's almost plotless, which is fascinating. Yeah. The other thing I noticed reading this was that this gave me a hint that backed up my theory about which great old one oh, we yes, might you be facing should... in this cycle. I wonder if you. Well, yeah, I mean, you've well. told me, so it was impossible to read the story, <laughs> not not notice it. There's quite a few references to Azatoth, isn't there? And he's he's and the mm, yeah. Black Man is a reference to Nyarlathotep. Nyarlathotep. I can never say that. Yeah. Can you give me a guide, Frank? Nyarlathotep. Nyarlathotep. Yeah. So I don't know. Is it is this a reference that these are going to be the the antagonists? I certainly wondered, and I thought this when they mentioned the secret name, because the secret name, uh, the the true name of Azathoth. Finding that out is one of the ways that you can awake Azathoth from the centre of the universe and destroy all of existence. So I'd already had a hint of that with one of the titles. And historically in the Arkham Files games, I think Azathoth, normally there are cults engaged in waking Azathoth that don't really understand what they're doing. So they believe they're working for the greater good, which is also a Mythos Pack title, but they don't really know what they're, they're handling and sort of wrestling with. Certainly Dreams in the Witch House, Gilman knows about Azathoth, but doesn't really have any conception. I guess the question then is, how does that tie into the name The Circle Undone? Because well, mm. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm, I'm curious about that name because the rest of the names have been pretty directly linked to what happens. There's a great double entendre with the name of the Forgotten Age, which we won't go into here. But you can listen to our interview with Matt to see his perspective mm. on that. The Circle Undone implies either some breaking of a cycle or yeah. it could mean, I, I guess this is sort of the interpretation I've been thinking, a circle as in a group of people who control a, a cult or, or something like that, like a like a, a fraternity. Do you know what I mean? Any circle. Yeah. Or even, you know, circle is also, it's a, a, something for binding as well, isn't it? For controlling. And is the Circle Undone... The balance breaking down yeah. as well, which is possible. Or like a seal being broken, you mean? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to read a little bit about Azathoth. Is this from the story or from... This is from, yeah, this is from Dreams in the Witch House because I, I like this and it just it touched on a few things. So this is, Gilman has had one of his dreams. When he awaked, he could recall a croaking voice that persuaded and threatened. He must meet the black man and go with them all to the throne of Azathoth at the centre of ultimate chaos. That was what she said. He must sign in his own blood the Book of Azathoth and take a new secret name now that his independent delvings had gone so far. What kept him from going with her and Brown Jenkin and the other to the throne of chaos where the thin flutes pipe mindlessly was the fact that he had seen the name Azathoth in the Necronomicon and knew it stood for a primal evil too horrible for description. Classic Lovecraft. Too scary. Yeah, too spooky. Won't, won't describe it. <laughs> <laughs> too spooky for description. Just thinking about what we've had in the cycle so far. We obviously we had Yogsathoth and Haster, and then Matt was at pains to emphasize the Forgotten Age. Yig really mm. wasn't the antagonist. 
And I think, again, this this could be another... You can't fight Azathoth. There can't be a showdown with Azathoth because Azathoth being awake is the is the end of all things as we understand it. So you could just have Azathoth as a background presence, a threat, and have something like the Order of the Silver Twilight trying to wake Azathoth and that being something that you're trying to prevent or trying to educate them about or things like that. For me, that that seems really exciting. I really hope the Circle Undone does play with that. But yeah, that's not to say they could it could go a completely different way and either not have a great great old one or have a different one and I think I'd still be satisfied. But I like the the breadcrumbs here along the Azathoth line. So, so yeah. from my point of view, what I enjoyed most in the story was the the more the descriptions of Arkham and its past, which I th- I thought w- was done okay, really yeah. well, and there wasn't that much of it. There's there's a few bits where he's staggering staggering along the streets and seeing some some uh, Arkham la- landmarks. I guess at this stage in uh, in Lovecraft's life, Arkham as a city or a town was more firm in his mind. He'd spent quite a lot of time exploring it. So there's that element yes. of like the place is it's almost rotten, you know. The the there's this he keeps on mentioning odors. It happens in all of all of Lovecraft stories. He's always on about online <laughs> odor, particularly in the Innsmouth. You can also yeah. almost smell like the rotting fish when you read that that story. But in Arkham, it, it it's just this, mm. this idea of age and and, and decay there, uh, and also the hints at the history. It's not far from Salem, is it? The Miskatonic River. So there's that mm. idea of that history being brought through into Arkham as well. And actually, when we've seen some of the encounter cards that have been teased, that seems to be the aspect of the Circle Undone that they're drawing. Sorry, the aspects of this story that they're drawing from, isn't it? The, the, the witch trials and the, the past mm. and mm. the things that have been established long ago in Arkham's history. Yes, it's it's the weight of history and the expectation that that produces that really weighs heavily upon it, isn't it? There are these minor characters in Dreams in the Witch House that are all panicking about it being Walpurgis Night and the evil things that will happen. And they they take it completely as read that these things will happen. The the narrator sort of dismisses them as superstition, but as a reader, I I also took them as definitely going to happen, that there would be the rights of witches and that this stuff is really close to the surface in Arkham. It's not it's not old history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So if you want to read something that maybe gets you in in the mood for The Circle Undone, we recommend The Dreams in the Witch House. But we wanted to touch on another couple of things in this lore episode. We've done similar before where we've talked about films or other material. And one thing we know that's coming up in this cycle is is tarot cards. And I really know very little about tarot. So I'm going to pass this over to you, Peter, to tell us more about tarot. Um, What's your experience with tarot? And can you outline... Briefly I went through a phase a while ago of, of being interested in, like, uh, I guess, occult memorabilia. Still interested in it. Um, and I did some research into things like how Ouija boards work and and tarot decks. Something about the ritual appeals to me, even though I don't believe there's any supernatural significance to it. Ouija boards are another interesting one, actually, because they were sold as a parlor game for, for some time before they really had a spiritual association. Um, so their use in horror films to a Victorian would probably be quite amusing. I'll tell you what, shall, we, shall I start with what's in a tarot deck? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we've got is 78 cards, and they're split up into, you might have heard the phrases minor arcana and major arcana. Yeah, I've heard of that. 
what a lot of people would associate with the tarot deck are the the major arcana, which are the twenty two picture cards. They are, you know, the hangman, <laughs> death, the devil, the emperor, the hierophant, the fool. These all have particular meanings associated with them, but there's actually another, like, four suits of cards alongside the major arcana, which are called the minor arcana. And the suits are, is it coins, cups, staves, and swords? Uh, and these have their own meaning as well. So a typical tarot deck, you would have the the ace up to the... Hang on, I'll, I'll, I'm leafing through the deck as, as I speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you have, for each of the suits, you have the ace up to the king, like you would get in a normal set of cards, for each of those four suits. And then you've got the major arcana on top of that as well. Now, I've done some research. As far as I can tell, the origins are the Middle East, and this was around the kind of 15th century. It was used for playing a game called Triumph. I think there's a few other games associated with it as well. Mm. What is interesting is... I think what would happen is royal uh, or rich families would commission sets of these decks of cards, which would have the ornate pictures on them, and then they'd use them to play a particular game. But they were also used to tell a game which was almost like storytelling. So you'd flip over the cards, and the pictures on the cards you'd work together into a story. I think oh, there is okay. a, a yeah. modern card game like that. It's called something like Once Upon a Time or something like that. Yeah, and there's even things now like story dice as well. You can roll yeah, dice story with cubes. pictures exactly. on it. And... Yeah, it's exactly the yeah. same thing. Story cubes, exactly. And that I think that was how tarot maybe started off. You know, you, you were telling stories associated with the pictures on the cards. And in the early 20th century, I think 1902, this deck appeared called the Rider Waite Tarot Deck, which had an explicit association with mysticism. And the deck was used from that point uh, in okay. order to do divination, or I think it's cartomancy is the, is the name. I might not have, I'm not an expert on tarot, so th- that was my, my research. Yeah. <laughs> that's where we got to. The crazy thing about that is that that's just reminded me, I once bought a deck of cards in Spain to play, you know, whist or, or whatever with a friend. And I didn't realise that I'd bought Spanish cards rather than kind of the traditional 52 yeah, so it, card it, deck. It, it will have those suits rather than the suits we're familiar with. So the diamonds, hearts, spades. Yeah. And... and I just looked it up and they have bastos, clubs, oros, golds, copas, cups, and espadas, swords. So clubs, swords, cups, and coins. Yeah. Those suits aren't unique to tarot decks. They're just from a different kind of bloodline of, of card playing and card games, right? And it seems like Spanish and Italian decks of cards might have those suits yeah absolutely and the same thing happened to me when i was a kid we got a deck of spanish cards to play games with while we were over there mm-hmm. and they were more ornately illustrated from what i remember as well yes they, they're very elegant I, I was really taken with them but i sort of wondered why why there wasn't kings and queens and things like that because they're yeah slightly different different people have very different relationships with it so so people who are experienced at doing tarot readings might have a different version of the history and the origins of the cards. There's stories of it going back to Egypt, I think. I think it's something which is hard to produce a definitive history of, which is interesting in and of itself. Uh, and obviously people believe it's a way of channeling foresight or, or you know, um, clairvoyance. So they're able to make predictions or offer guidance about someone's present and future based on what cards reveal. 
So is this in the same line as, say, reading tea leaves or looking at the lines on one's hand? It's that there are meanings that you can learn to, to decode if you've just learned the patterns and you can try and use your sixth sense or other kind of mystical power to to read in is that is that right yeah to an extent i, th- I think it's it's associated with those kind of forms of clairvoyance as well for me i think with tarot there's an aspect of telling the story is what helps so explaining it it, it gives you a, a method to think about the situation you're in if you've got a problem and then what a possible way out of that might be you know it's like looking for shapes in the clouds you're going to see a story there mm. Because mm. there's pictures and everything, you know. There are prescriptive meanings with the cards. I think it's it's up to the reader's personal interpretation of what the card means and their interpretation of the art on the card. So it will depend on what deck you've got. But the Rider Waite deck, which is the really, really famous one, that had meanings. There was a booklet that came with it, a book that came with it, that, that told you what the particular cards meant. So... Leading up to the announcement for the Circle and I know Fantasy Flight did they they released some tarot art on their Twitter account, mm, and yeah. we know that art's going to be used in the cycle, which is why we're looking at tarot. Uh, do you want to give me one of the cards they looked at? Yes. Yeah, so, for instance, all of them they they have bullets and then Roman numerals. So they say nine. Look for answers within and not without. Many paths lead to the same answer. Contemplate the greater truth. And I'm guessing that nine is the hermit. Yeah, n- n- nine is the hermit. So uh, according to Rider Waite, <laughs> the meaning of the hermit is uh, prudence, also treason, dissimulation, roguery and corruption. And, and actually, one of the things that's important with the tarot is the orientation of the card. So if it comes out upside down, that has other meanings. So concealment, disguise, policy, fear and unreasoned caution. So you can see from oh. that, it's quite a scattershot collection of, of concepts which are, which are associated with it. I know when the cards came out, what I did was look at, compare the cards to the, the other tarot cards I knew to see what differences were there and what, what commonalities were there as well. Mm. But I'm not sure whether that's I got a huge amount of meaning from that. It was just something interesting to do. <laughs> well, this, it really reminds me of... Uh, his Dark Materials. Did you read Northern Lights? Uh, well, she's got the... the Alithiometer, is it? Yeah, exactly. So for people who haven't read that, the protagonist in His Dark Materials, Lyra, she has this thing that looks like a compass, which is why it's called the Golden Compass in the United States. But it's an alithiometer, and you can it has three dials, and you position the three dials to point at some of the symbols around the edge of the alithiometer. And there are, I don't know, maybe 30 symbols or something like that. There's a, an hourglass, a cauldron, a helmet, a beehive. There are all these different symbols. And then there's a fourth hand that flicks around, touching the sort of various of the symbols that you're meant to watch. And that gives you an answer to your question. But you can only ask the right question if you know which symbols you want to put the first three hands at to pose your question. And there's a really good bit in Northern Lights where they explain, I think he explains one of the symbols to Lyra, and it's the kind of layers of meaning. So I think it's the beehive. That's certainly one that remembers, or maybe ant. And it can have a a primary meaning, like work. So ants are kind of hard workers. 
but then it can have lots of other meanings beneath that. So like diligence or tedium, it's boredom, you know, being an ant is being kind of stuck with a meaningless life, supposedly. And so things like that. So the three symbols you choose to pose the question can have like a host of different meanings. And then the answer that you're given as the the fourth hand flicks around can is really up for, entirely for the interpretation of the person posing the question. I, I was really taken by that. And of course, I just realised now that it's almost entirely lifted off tarot, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I read that, I must admit. But uh, yeah, now I think back to it. <laughs> yes, it, it even has a thing where the amount of time the finger waits on a certain symbol might be pointing to a different meaning. So it like might linger for a long time on the beehive, and that means whatever it means, sweetness, but then flick quickly to another symbol which actually undercuts that or whatever else. Let's do another of the amazing Lenka Sibmekova tarot ones. I want to hear more meanings. So this one is number five. Adapt your beliefs and be open to new truths. You're expected to conform do not stray from the path. And it has this amazing... If you haven't seen this, this art, listener, pop onto... In fact, I'll put it in the description of this episode. There's a great post on the Fantasy Fight Games forum of someone collecting all of these different pieces of art. And all of them use this same kind of golden orange as the the detail colour. And then they kind of have spooky green for the rest of it. And they are gorgeous pieces of art, like stunning so yeah, so yeah, what's five? So five is the hierophant, and there are the crucial thing on the hierophant. So so what the Rider Waite uh, uh, guide says is he represents uh, marriage alliance, captivity, servitude, um, also mercy and goodness, inspiration, and then the, again the reverse means other things. But but the thing that that interests me is the hand gesture the hierophant is doing. And the right hand is raised. I haven't got the art in front of me, Frank. Am I, am I describing this right? For the Lenka Semekova one? Yes, yeah. So for this one, the right hand is pushing down on a sort of ancient cobwebbed book. Yes. And the left hand is holding a staff. Yeah, okay, right. I remember this now. This was interesting because typically the Hierophant has their right hand raised in, you probably have seen it as the, is it the benediction or the blessing? Okay, with some fingers up to bless people. Two fingers. Well, no, two fingers up, two fingers pointing down. Mm. That symbolizes a link between heaven and hell, or heaven and earth, uh, because you've got the two fingers pointing down and the two fingers pointing up. And I think this this is this is using a lot of things. There was a there was a recent case where the Church of Satan were suing the makers of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Sorry, because they'd used an image of the devil who does this this gesture as well. So that the, that hand is meant to be a link or a bridge between heaven and earth. And the fact that it was on a book felt to be significant, that there was some meaning being imparted to the book. You see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it can be something as subtle as the body positions or if a character is not looking the right way or if you even draw a card upside down. Any of those things can have meaning if you know to look for them. Yes, yeah. It's... Fascinating stuff. It really is. I find it a whole subsection of the history of the world I know very little about and I'm very intrigued by. Yeah, and I must admit, so please don't take everything I said as as, as gospel. I know almost nothing about it. I just, it was an appreciation for the art and the, and the ritual behind it, which led me to do a little bit of reading. So yeah, if you're interested, 
go and do some research. It's a fascinating thing to read about. Historically, well, when we did Forgotten Age, it turned out one of our list- listeners, Australian Peter, was hugely into Mesoamerican history and sent us some really interesting notes. If you're someone who's really into your tarot, you could send us some thoughts. If the things that we've missed, we'd definitely mention them on a future episode. There's one final thing, actually, though, that someone in the community at large has allowed us to share and I think is really fitting for a lore episode, and that's talking about the Order of the Silver Twilight, because that's the other thing we've seen hinted at so far with the previews of the Cycle Undone. This, I, I suppose they're not even a religious order, are they? They're, they're a, some kind of social or private members order, and I've always assumed that they're just kind of baddie humans yeah so i was really intrigued to discover that that's not quite the case so so, yeah my my knowledge of them has been just as basically antagonists in the various fantasy flight games board games and role-playing games i think the chaos Mm -hmm. human role-playing games i know nothing else about them i didn't i barely knew they had a history beyond them being generic cultists yeah so that's that's great that you say that because that's where I was at as well. So Alanim on FFG, that's his or her name. I'm not sure of the gender, but he or she has been happy for us to share what they wrote about the Order of the Silver Twilight. So they actually did start out in the Call of Cthulhu RPG as the Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight, shortened or abbreviated to Host, which was out outwardly a kind of Masonic social club with a name based on the real-life Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And if you've not looked up the Golden Dawn, they are bonkers weird and very interesting as well. It's all of that kind of early 20th century and late 19th century social club meets mysticism. You know, there are maybe secret rituals or handshakes, but how much is it actually anything you know how much is it anything religious or is it just a kind of social club and a way of people fraternizing or how much is it the, the higher echelons of these orders actually performing cult activity anyway the hermetic order of the silver twilight secretly in call of cthulhu was a mythos cult and they induct members into their higher orders where they basically become evil and insane mythos cultists i'm quoting alanim now and wizards with the ultimate goal of essentially being to destroy the world trademark so when players first met the silver twilight they were just bad guys basically they were bad guys masquerading as masons or other order members but they turned out to just be straightforwardly horrible evil people okay so they were developed further in the arkham horror board game and i think our correspondent has played the second edition rather than not the original edition, which came out in the 80s. So the second edition I've talked about before because it was one of the first big board games I got back into in 2004 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And in that, you can go to the Silver Twilight Lodge and you kind of mingle with the rich people there. You can overhear weird conspiracy theories, so on. You can also get inducted into the lodge and then have... Uh, encounters the, the way the second edition works is in locations you have there's like a an encounter deck for each location mm-hmm. yeah it's been a long time since i played it but every time you're in one of those locations you draw one of these cards so you'll have an encounter theme for that location and you learn fairly quickly certain places have horrible encounters uh but yeah so if you join the lodge you the your encounters are with the inner sanctum instead and you get more involved in what they're doing I'll read this bit out from our correspondent. The Silver Twilight Lodge are kind of bad guys insofar as Diana Stanley thinks they're doing horrible things uh, and they are definitely 
are led by evil people willing to beat you up and do horrible rituals. But they are also a bit of a force for good, as they clean up the streets of monsters and do various rituals that, that close gates. So they they obviously have an agenda of some sort, but it's not exactly clear what that is, I think. Mm. And that definitely carries through to Eldritch Horror. I remember there being a, a Mythos card in that that's called Silver Twilight Aid, and it's a very generous card where everyone heals things or gets spells or assets. And it sort of clashes with my the idea I had of Silver Twilight, which was that they were just nasty cultists but suddenly they're turning up and helping. So it, it seems that FFG took this idea that they have an agenda, but they didn't want it to be straightforwardly good or bad. And that's maybe nowhere better seen than in the Call of Cthulhu card game, which is where a lot of my experience of this kind of thing comes from. So you might have heard me asking Matt about this on a previous episode, but Call of Cthulhu card game originally had seven factions, three human factions and four monster, sort of great old one factions. And then they released a deluxe later in that game's life where the Order of the Silver Twilight became a faction that you could play as and they brought out an entire cycle that kind of backed that up. You had this chance of playing as Silver Twilight as one of your factions. But in Call of Cthulhu, one of the crazy things about that game is you could build a deck with, I think, up to three factions in your deck. But normally people did paired factions, but there were no rules about who could pair whom. So you could do like a Miskatonic plus... Yogg-Sothoth deck, or you could do a Cthulhu and Hasta deck if you wanted to. You can you can do what you like. And Silver Twilight were quite a good match for some of the scary monster factions because they kind of had beefy, human, scary characters, and they were a bit morally ambiguous, which sort of worked. And Alanim writes, most of their card mechanics were about sacrificing your characters and cards for temporary gain but they emphasise that they were still on the side of humanity most of the time. So, yeah, so that basically they were fleshed out more. And because it was a card game, that meant they could release individual characters. So Senator Nathaniel Rhodes and Carl Stanford as the kind of leader of the lodge. And it's interesting because he sometimes gets called Carl Sanford as well. That T it sometimes drops and sometimes doesn't. And he, as a subtitle, has sinister not necessarily evil. So still they're hammering home this kind of moral ambiguity for those characters. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's Silver Twilight. We've seen as well in Arkham 3rd Edition that they make an appearance. And again, it seems like FFG really want to hammer home this idea that you could side with them and that their goals need not necessarily be evil goals they might just be goals that are all about achieving their ends or doing what they think is right and as long as you can adjust your morality to fit in with that maybe you'll you'll get along with that fine so how do you think they're gonna feature in the cycle that we're about to start what are your predictions frank yeah well we have this prologue scenario that we know about which is about a lodge meeting and we play these characters and i'm expecting at least one of those characters to to die or be injured or go missing and that to set the tone. And I'm really hoping that we then play as those prologue characters later in the campaign and maybe find out more about what's happening or things like that. I would love if some of what's going on is maybe a little bit like Echoes of the Past, where you have cultists kind of up to their business and investigators up to theirs, and how much you want to engage with them is sort of up to you as players. So maybe there'll be scenarios where there are Silver Twilight characters off doing things but you need not necessarily 
fight with them if you don't want to. You could maybe parlay with them or have them on your side. Maybe we'll see a couple of allies that are explicitly Silver Twilight allies. And it's worth noting as well that it's not just Diana who's Silver Twilight traded. Preston is Silver Twilight traded, traded as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he calls back to this, the Masonic type of origin of the Silver Twilight Lodge, doesn't he? Uh, his weakness card is Lodge Debts. Yeah. And the art on that looks like, uh, I don't know whether it's a Masonic handshake, but it's it's like a secret handshake, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And even debts in the title of that, it's Lodge Debts in air quotes. Yeah. So it's that idea of favours, of, uh, favors owing something to the Lodge, or maybe them the, the unsavoury side of one of these fraternal orders where they ask you for something and you can't refuse them because you're you're trapped in it. It, it kind of blurs the lines between mafia and gentleman club. You know? <laughs> it sort of puts the squeeze on you. Puts the squeeze on you. That's a great turn of phrase, Frank. Yeah. Literally, as they squeeze your hand and figuratively. I think it, it could be interesting if this cycle featured a conflict either internally to the lodge or with other cults. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Like a, a shadow war going on in Arkham. It could be, could be quite a compelling uh, uh, story to be told. We've seen in Forgotten Age that even small decisions can have an impact on a story going on kind of around the investigators. Mm. And it would be great if there was yeah, a similar thing in Circle Undone or maybe fleshed out in a, in a bigger way about the intrigue within the Lodge and what's going on, maybe, maybe power struggles within it. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, I'm a sucker for just cult activity and I think it's really hard to do in in games and particularly Arkham is quite a good game to do it in but you can't just have all your cultists just generate doom and that be all they do you need to have them kind of be threatening in a way that's not necessarily just oh you'll lose the scenario because sometimes their scheme is not what the agenda deck scheme is and yeah if we see a, a way of that being brought to life in this cycle I'll be a very happy bunny yeah absolutely me too cool well hope you like this episode let us know what your thoughts are about which great old one we'll be facing will we even be facing a great old one should it really be nihilathotep and we should have delved into that we'll find out you can contact us on drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com we're also drawn to the flame on facebook and twitter and we're on patreon www.patreon.com forward slash drawn to the flame if you become a patron you get to come and chat to us in our discord generally you can get involved in talking about the game with a really cool group of people so maybe it's something to consider we've also got a huge event coming up arkham in flames on the 9th and 10th of march so if you haven't yet got a ticket it's in london on those days, we heartily recommend it. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am Unitled everywhere. That's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Twitter and Reddit and Discord. So say hello if you see me. How about you, Frank? Uh, just before I say, how much do you charge for a tarot reading? <laughs> I'd be happy to give someone a tarot reading for free. Wow. Okay. If get get those requests yeah, in speedily. They're willing to accept yeah. my honkingly bad advice. <laughs> you gave me this tarot reading and now my life's ruined. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a disclaimer on that. Yeah, I'm FB on Twitter, EPH underscore BEE, and I'm around the places Zooey Glass as well. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. When age fell upon the world and wonder went out of the minds of men, when grey cities reared to smoky skies, 
tall towers grim and ugly, in whose shadow none might dream of the sun or of spring's flowering meads. When learning stripped earth of her mantle of beauty, and poets sang no more save of twisted phantoms seen with bleared and inward-looking eyes. When these things had come to pass, and childish hopes had gone away forever, there was a man who travelled out of life on a quest into the spaces whither the world's dreams had fled. Of the name and abode of this man but little is written, for they were of the waking world only, yet it is said that both were obscure. It is enough to know that he dwelt in a city of high walls, where sterile twilight reigned, and that he toiled all day among shadow and turmoil, coming home at evening to a room whose one window opened, not on the fields and groves, but on a dim court where other windows stared in dull despair. From that casement one might see only walls and windows, except sometimes when one leaned far out and peered aloft at the small stars that passed. And because mere walls and windows must soon drive to madness a man who dreams and reads much, the dweller in that room used night after night to lean out and peer aloft to glimpse some fragment of things beyond the waking world and the greyness of tall cities. After years he began to call the slow-sailing stars by name, and to follow them in fancy when they glided regretfully out of sight, till at length his vision opened to many secret vistas whose existence no common eye suspects. And one night a mighty gulf was bridged, and the dream-haunted sky swelled down to the lonely watcher's window to merge with the close air of his room and make him a part of their fabulous wonder. There came to that room wild streams of violet midnight glittering with dust of gold, vortices of dust and fire swirling out of the ultimate spaces and heavy with perfumes from beyond the worlds. Opiate oceans poured there, litten by suns that the eye may never behold, and having in their whirlpools strange dolphins and sea-nymphs of unrememberable deeps. Noiseless infinity eddied around the dreamer, and wafted him away without even touching the body that leaned stiffly from the lonely window. And for days not counted in men's calendars, the tides of far spheres bare him gently to join the dreams for which he longed, the dreams that men had lost. And in the course of many cycles they tenderly left him, sleeping on a green sunrise shore, a green shore fragrant with lotus blossoms and starred by red camelots. That was Azatoth by H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm.